Good morning, everyone, and congratulations for making it here on time, figuring out daylight savings time once again. So we have a very beautiful topic this morning from Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda. It's reason versus intuition. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Jesus, when addressing his critics, appealed to reason and common sense. In his training of the disciples, however, he, like all great masters, encouraged in them the development of a higher faculty, soul intuition. For it is only by intuition that spiritual perceptions are achieved. In chapter 16 of the Gospel of St. Matthew, we find Jesus drawing on the intuition of his disciples by asking them who they thought he was in reality. They immediately understood that what he wanted from them was a subtle answer, not some obvious reply based on his nationality, sex, and the like. Peter, it was, at last, who understood and answered the question on its intended level, the spiritual. Thou art the Christ, he said, the Son of the living God. And Jesus turned to him, saying, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, for not by human nature was this truth revealed to thee, but by my heavenly Father. And I tell thee this also, thou art Peter, which is to say a rock, and upon this rock will I build my church, and never will the powers of darkness overwhelm it. Jesus was pleased with his disciple for relating to the question on its deepest level. Reason could not have given Peter that answer. The answer came through the faculty of soul intuition and proved him thereby to be a spiritually advanced disciple. It was his intuitive perception, that insight which cannot be shaken by tempests of reasonable doubt, that Jesus praised in referring to him as a rock. The, quote, church he referred to next was the edifice of cosmic consciousness. Any outer church institution would have to depend as in fact the Christian churches have always done, on the level of understanding of its individual leaders and members. Peter's intuitive perceptions could never have been passed on to an outward succession of prelates. Clarity comes by direct soul perception. 
confusion results from excessive dependence on reason as the guide to understanding. As the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita states, when your intellect at present confused by the diversity of teaching in the scriptures becomes steadfast in the ecstasy of deep meditation, then you will achieve final union with God. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. have a fascinating subject today. I want to read uh, a prayer demand. This is the prayer demand for self-realization from whispers from eternity. Master said that when he's gone, rely on this book and the prayer demands in here to guide you. This prayer demand for self-realization. O cosmic vibration, reverberate through me as the cosmic intelligent sound. Teach me to find in thee the presence of the reflected Christ consciousness. O holy vibration, lead me to intuit that Christ, that Christ in thee. O omnipresent cosmic sound of Om or Amen, reverberate through me and expand my consciousness from this body to the whole universe. Teach me to feel in thee, the all-permeating perennial bliss of the Supreme Spirit. Well, this topic this morning is really about the extent of consciousness. There's reason and the ego on one side, and then on the other side, our consciousness extends to soul consciousness, which perceives through intuition, and then from soul consciousness to cosmic consciousness, or the realization of ourself as the one all-pervading spirit. But that spectrum of consciousness is very, very interesting. In fact, it's what drew me onto the spiritual path. I was always interested in consciousness as I was growing up, and really interested in the extent of consciousness. I thought perhaps I could study that in college. So I majored in psychology. Psychologists do not understand consciousness, at least in the uh, uh, University of Minnesota with the rat labs. They, they did not have the scope of consciousness. And so I was actually at quite a lot of despair when I graduated from from college, not knowing where to go from there. And it was then that I came onto the autobiography of a yogi. And in that book, Master really talks about the extent of consciousness. And so it was that that really changed my life and put me on the path, the life path that I have. But this 
question of consciousness is very, very interesting. At least to me it's interesting. I hope I can make it interesting to you too. So on the one end of the spectrum, we have reason and, uh, as Christ put it, human nature and logic. And that is the way most of us function most of the time. Now, logic depends, reason depends on information that we've received through the senses. We've heard it, we've seen it, we've read about it, somebody's told us about it. And so we have these, one could call them little puzzle pieces, these little bits of knowledge that we have. And then we rearrange those bits of knowledge according to the demands that we have. Patanjali, you know, he predated uh, Jesus. He talked extensively about consciousness. He talked about the ways that we know, the ways that we know at least truth on this level, reason. He said that we have direct perception. We have inference. We have the word of someone who is knowledgeable and that we can trust. We have memory and we have dreams. So the first three, you know, we have direct perception. You have your keys in your coat pocket. You reach into the coat pocket. You feel the keys and you know that they're there. That's direct perception. You have inference. I remember I put my keys in my coat pocket this morning and I didn't turn my coat upside down so they didn't fall out so they must still be in my coat pocket my keys are in my coat pocket or you have the word of someone you trust honey where are my keys (laughs) they're in your coat pocket (laughs) and so you have these different means of of perception but all of that comes in through the perception of the senses, the five senses. Now, intuition has been called the sixth sense, but that's really not a correct definition. Intuition is another way of knowing. So you've got the senses that come in, then you've got intuition. The senses are, uh, they pertain to the ego. Now, the ego is the soul that has identified with this body, with the senses, and with the consciousness, the memories of that individual kind of location of our consciousness. The soul is our true nature, which is omnipresent. It's beyond time. It's beyond space. But for the sake of the discussion this morning, it is that aspect of us that is not localized. And its means of perception are through intuition, not through the senses. And so you've got this spectrum, the uh, ego and the senses on one side using logic and reason, and the soul using direct perception on the other side. Now, all of that is us. It's not like we are the ego and then we'll become the soul. We already are the soul. The ego is there as long as we, the soul thinks that we're this in, located in this body, in this time, in this space. Now, even when we do that, there's a fascinatingly broad um, spectrum 
of how well we're able to use these tools of, of reason and perception. You know, there's we've all met very dull people. Their memory doesn't work very well. They can't make very clear associations between things. They're, they're just not very bright. And then we've all met very, very bright people who are quickly able to associate their... When I say associate, it's you've got puzzle pieces and, and they can rearrange those. It's like connections in the brain. I think a dull person, if you were to see the brain, they wouldn't have many connections between the nerve endings and they, those connections that they did have wouldn't be firing very fast or vi- firing very powerful. A really bright person has very powerful connections, lots of them, and they fire rapidly and there are lots of different ways. And so they can uh, work very quickly in this world. They can remember things. They can manipulate things like mathematics and so on. And so a bright person works very well in the world of reason and logic, but it's still in the world of reason and logic. Then we come kind of to the far reaches of that, and we have extreme examples of of the use of memory and logic and so on. You have kind of the extent of a person developing their own ability. An example of that is a person who's a professional memory expert. You know, the kind who goes into an audience and they look around and they say, tell me your name, your occupation, your phone number, and where you're from. And everybody does that. And then then they can repeat it back, every person. And for most of us, you kind of scratch your head. But, but that's just an development of a power that we all have. And so they've worked at it. Even the ancient Greeks, you know why we say in the first place, in the second place? That was a memory device of the ancient Greeks. When they were going to give a speech, they would think of the points they wanted to make and they would think of the walk that they made to the forum. And then as they got to the first place that they remembered, the plaza, they would think, okay, in the first place, I'm going to remember this. And in the second place, and so they remembered it and we still you know, 2,000 years later, we've still got that memory uh, technique for us. So you've got extreme memory. Then you've got people who are savants. Sometimes they're autistic, sometimes they're, um, uh, they're not, but they have abilities that are vast beyond what we can develop by effort, by willpower. And so... Um, Davy and I saw a video of a man who, he's autistic, um, and so he doesn't function very well in a societal way, but he has not only the ability to have a photographic memory, which many, not many, but some people do, but he has a visual photographic memory, and then he can draw from that photographic memory anything that he wants to. They took him on a helicopter ride around Rome, which he had never seen, for 45 minutes. And then they gave him a panel about 12 feet long and about 6 feet wide. And he started at the center. And he started drawing Rome. 
And he drew the whole of Rome that he'd seen. And the Colosseum had the right number of columns in the right place. The plaza had the right number. St. Peter's had the right number of windows. It was like a photograph. So that it took him a week to draw that. And he starts from the middle and he just draws outward from the middle like that. It was a fascinating video. But there's an extreme example. Another the movie The Rain Man. The man who was the rain man uh, knew every airplane schedule, every flight, everywhere. And he knew statistics that was in the movie. But so he had this incredible memory. I think it was he, someone asked him if he knew Gettysburg's, uh, uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg address. And he said, oh yes. And he gave the address of where Gettysburg stayed. I mean, Lincoln stayed when he was in Gettysburg. <laughs> so incredible memory, but literal and, and not able to function well in the, in the world. He also had the ability, he, he learned to play the piano. He had the ability, if he heard any tune, he could play it on the piano, hearing it once. He could just then, then play it. So you've got people with extreme abilities, but they still have to see Rome. They still have to hear the music. They still have to see the piano. Then as you get to the far stretches of normal functioning consciousness, you've got some examples of people who are still functioning through the senses and through the ego, but they go beyond the limitations of that. An example of that is in, I think, his autobiography. Anyway, the, a basketball player, Bill Russell, said that he would get into a heightened state of consciousness sometimes playing basketball. And many athletes do this. They call it being in the zone. But Bill Russell said that when he was in this heightened state, he knew everything that was going to happen before it happened. He knew who was going to get the ball, who was going to, how they were going to dribble, who they were going to pass to. And it, he would sometimes be in this heightened state for five or more minutes at a time. And he said it would stay there until someone made a mistake, especially one associated with the ego or selfishness. And when that happened, then it would break and he would come back into his normal um, functioning consciousness. So there you've got an example of something that is on the edge of intuition. Uh, well, is intuition on the edge of soul perception. You also have examples of people who go beyond the limitation of the body in their perception. So you have many examples of people who have gone through a near-death experience and have then perceived something that's beyond what they could perceive from their senses. They they know what's happening at Aunt Jane's house while they're on the table, um, having undergone a heart attack and aren't they aren't breathing anymore, or um, uh, Damien Brinkley is that it? Danny. Danny and Brinkley um, had a perception when he was in his uh, death experience, near death experience, where he perceived 
very clear memory of everything that he had done. He'd been a sniper and assassinated many people. He knew not only, he not only remembered that, but he knew the ramifications of that act. So if he had killed somebody, he knew their wife, their children, their extended family, and what their death meant to that extended family. So there we're beginning to expand beyond the consciousness of the ego. We're getting into the realms of intuition and beginning to break out of the limitations. When you really break out of ego... That's where you go into high spiritual states. The whole of the spiritual path, everything that we do is designed to break us out of the perception of ego, the limitation of ego, I should say. So our spiritual path is meant to take us from ego to soul perception. When that really happens, then we leave behind the limitations of sense perception and rational, logical mind. And we get into the perceptions of our soul. And there are, that's why the autobiography is so fascinating and why it was so completely fascinating to me is because Master has example after example after example of what happens when you break out. I didn't particular when you break out of ego consciousness i didn't cognize that as such but what i did cognize even in the first reading is he is talking about a way of perceiving and he's talking from personal experience and this is truth talking and that expansion of consciousness so just there are many of them when when um, he was relatively young person you know, remember the story where um, he went, his father sent him to Benares and he uh, went to the uh, uh, sleepless, no, the levitating saint, uh, Pranabhananda. And he went there with a note from his father and his father, Pranabhananda, kind of said, uh, be quiet here. He was levitating at the time. Then he settled down. He said, I know your father sent you here without master ever giving him. But the more uh, exciting thing in that chapter was that then soon another person arrived and Pranabhananda had appeared in two bodies, had appeared to a second person, told him that Mukunda was there. He was supposed to come and meet him and then came back. Well, that's beyond a little bit beyond the confines of the ego, the ability to appear in two bodies, the ability to know something that has no connection with information coming in through your your senses. So here we're expanded beyond. Another time uh, is when Master, remember the story where he went and he refused to bow down to the stone image and because he refused to, he wanted to meet this saint, because he refused to bow down to the stone, stone image, he had to get punished a little bit. Because God is everywhere, it's in that stone image too. Master was thinking, why should God be confined to this stone image? And so then he went in search of the saint Ram Gopal Muzumdar, 
And remember the story where every time he stopped to ask somebody, he said, oh, it's just a crochet away. Crochet's, I think, a half a mile or so, just a crochet away. He spent all day going one crochet, one more crochet, one more crochet, until at dusk, he'd wandered all over. Then Ram Gopal Mazumdar came to him. But here's what's interesting. When he came to him, not only did he know that he was in search for him, but he said, I was going to leave today, but I knew you were coming. Before Master knew that he was coming, presumably. And therefore, I stayed and waited for you. And then at night, the sleepless saint, he calls him. At night, they saw this sparkling lightning flashes. And it was then Master begged him to give him samadhi and, um, or enlightenment. And uh, Ram Gopal Musamdar said, wait, you're just about to meet your master and, and he's the proper one to give you that. And so, okay, now we move into the realm of enlightenment and what happens then? Enlightenment or samadhi is the point at which the ego dissolves. That's the basically the definition of samadhi. So in samadhi, what happens? You go breathless, meaning that you detach from this body, you detach from this personality, you detach your soul from the confines of the ego. It's no longer limited to that. And you go into your soul nature and you intuit. You don't, it's not reasonable. It's not logic anymore. You intuit. You just know. You know things that you wouldn't know confined to the ego. You know yourself as the soul. In deep samadhi, you know yourself not just as this particle of being, but basically that you're everything in the universe. That's Christ consciousness. That's, that's what Christ was. And he was saying, who am I? Because he had had that experience. And you can't, you can't his disciples couldn't get there by logic because it's an experience beyond logic. And so Peter said, you are the Christ, the anointed one. And that's why Christ said, it's not by human nature, not by the ego, not by the senses that you know this, but by intuition. So Peter had intuition developed enough so that he had that direct perception. John also had that direct perception. They were the two highest of his disciples. John said, I know by the Christ within me. I, I know I, I die daily and know by the Christ within me that I die daily. I've forgotten the exact quote. Now, so they were, they were able to go into samadhi, into that direct soul perception. But somebody like St. Thomas had to stick his finger into Christ's womb when, when Christ uh, reincarnated or, or came back after death. He didn't reincarnate. He appeared after death. And, and Thomas, if he'd been functioning from samadhi, he wouldn't have to stick his finger in Christ's womb to, uh, wound to know who he was. But he still had 
the limitations of the perceptions, in this case, sight, sound, touch, that he needed in order to form his opinions. But we go beyond that when we go into samadhi. And when we go into samadhi, then as I say, the confines of the ego fall away. We begin to function through our soul nature, the consciousness ex- expanded. In Sabikalpa Samadhi, then after we have to be maintaining that state of consciousness of complete life force withdrawal from this body. We have to maintain that by sitting in a in a meditative posture and during that meditation we're withdrawn, but when that meditation ends then we come back into the body and we come back into the ego and we come back into the functioning limitation of the senses and logic and rationality. Swami has said that state actually is the biggest spiritual test of all because when we come back into the ego from that high state beyond the ego, it's as if we're now in the ego with the memory of the universe flowing through us. And we think we're really hot stuff. We think the ego is really hot stuff because we've had that experience. And he said, there are many saints who have fallen from that high experience and have to go through a few more lifetimes to get beyond that. And so he, Swami calls it kind of the final test. In Nirbhakalpa Samadhi, we don't have to be withdrawn anymore. That's the state of a great master like all of these masters and like and Christ. Because they know that they're not the ego. They know that they're the Christ. They know their soul nature. From that, it's a very, very different perception of the world. Now, Master said to Swami, he, Swami was helping him walk through the desert. Master said, and he was swaying a little like this and took Swami's arm. He said, sometimes it's hard to remember to keep this body fun- moving when I feel myself equally in all bodies. Now from the ego, you think, oh, isn't that kind of quaint? He's very expanded and he feels a sense of compassion and unity with all these other people. And so much so he can hardly remember um, that he's supposed to keep this body. That's such a low level of understanding of it. Master was not master. Master was not the body. Master was not Yogananda, at least not confined to it. He was the whole universe. And yes, he had a mission to come and help us understand our natures. And so he had to take on a body, but he was not limited by the senses and by the sense of ego in that body. And therefore, his perception was universal, not individual. Our perception is individual, not universal. But when that breaks, we not only feel ourselves in all bodies, as Master said, I know the thoughts every one of you think. And so we know all the thoughts, we know everything. We, can, we can't even imagine that. Read carefully or memorize samadhi, which is what Master 
asked us to do. And it gives you an idea of the perception of someone in that state. Thoughts of all men, past, present, and future to come. You know that. You're beyond time, you're beyond space, you're beyond individual location. That's the true intuition. Now, our whole life here, our whole path, is meant to get us from ego perception to soul perception. That's why listening to Om, if you listen deeply to Om, it draws the consciousness away from ego into Om is the vibration of the universe. And so we become not a located individual point in the universe, but we become the whole of the universe, whole of creation by listening to Om or by looking into the light after the spiritual, after practice of our techniques, which are meant to draw the life force away from the senses and bring them into the soul consciousness. That's summation of our whole path, drawing the life force away from the senses and the ego, going beyond the senses into direct perception. Okay, so now we've got kind of the two ends of the pole, dull, totally ego consciousness here, nirbhakalpa samadhi and no ego, universal consciousness there. But we're somewhere in the middle, most of us, we're still functioning with ego consciousness. So how do we get from one end of the pole to the other? That's the real question. When you ask that question, as Patanjali says, ah, and now you come to the study of the science of yoga. So how do we get there? Well, there are many things that can help. Detaching ourselves from the downward pulling energy, that that which pulls the life force down, if we try to detach from that a little bit, as the life force is pulled down into the lower chakras, we become more concerned with the ego. We become concerned with my possessions, my security, my looks, my sexuality, my power, all of that downward pull. If the energy goes up, that all of that downward pulling consciousness begins to leave, we become concerned with compassion, love, peace, joy. We identify with the higher aspects. So one thing is to work on the heart is the pivot point of the life force. From the heart, the feelings can either draw us down or they can draw us up. And so work on purifying our feelings, which is why we have the um, purification ceremony. We offer the ghee into the fire. That's to purify the heart's feelings, to draw the life force up. And so as we purify the, the heart's feelings and meditate more, meditation strengthens the power of the magnetic pole at the spiritual eye. As that power of that pole gets stronger and stronger, it draws our consciousness up toward it. And if we meditate more deeply and more powerfully for more length of time, that pole, magnetic pole at the top of the chakra system 
gets very, very powerful and automatically our life force is drawn up. Other things that we can do, we can work to balance out the feeling nature and the rational intellectual nature. Swami told me years ago that I needed to work on that. I was too rational, too much in my mind. I needed to work on developing my feeling nature more. And it was largely in response to that that I started painting because painting gets me out of uh, rationalizing and into feeling uh, more of... of uh, anyway, I won't go into that. But but if if you can balance feeling and rational aspects, that's where wisdom comes from and expanded consciousness. So work on that. Work on depth of meditation. Work on developing more expansion of heart quality compassion, caring, kindness, everything that you do to expand your consciousness beyond the confines of the ego brings you more and more into touch with your own soul perception. As you get more and more in touch with that intuitive power within you, it's that power that makes the spiritual path real that intuition, because it's not by the mind. Both Christ was saying that and the Gita was saying that. It's not by the mind. God is a spirit and you should worship him in spirit and in truth. Spirit means beyond the confines of the physical plane. And worship him in spirit. Worship him in your soul nature, in your subtle nature, and in truth. Intuition is that which produces absolute truth, absolute knowing, and the knowing of who and what we are.